Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Sola. This series covers the five pivotal ideas of the Protestant Reformation. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone. These ideas lie at the heart of the true Christian faith and are as foundational today as they were 500 years ago. This month, we're going to be doing something special. For the five Sundays here in October 2017, we are going to be uh, looking at the five solas. That was five key sayings of the Reformation. We're doing this because on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, not intending to start a Reformation, uh, but that, in fact, in the providence of God was what happened. And so there's people all over the world uh, paying attention to and observing and celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so we're going to be looking at these five key sayings of the Reformation. And I want to say as we do this that this is not just because we like studying history. I, I do like studying history, but only because history actually turns out to be very relevant to our modern times. This is also not an issue about trying to bash Roman Catholics or anything like that. In fact, what we're going to see is, if anything, we need a Reformation worse today than we did 500 years ago. And so we're going to talk about these five aspects of, that are related to the gospel. Sola Scriptura, which means the, refers to the ultimate authority of Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, which means we are saved by grace alone. Solus Christus, which means we are saved by the work of Christ alone. Sola Fide, we access the work of Christ through faith alone. And then finally, soli deo gloria, which means all of this is for the glory of God alone. This is very central Bible gospel stuff, and we're going to be doing it for the next month. Today, we're going to begin with sola scriptura, the ultimate authority of scripture alone. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. So our text today is going to be Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, the Reformation is looked back as beginning on October the 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, but is Time developed. Luther wasn't trying to start a reformation. He was doing what was commonly done. That was the equivalent of posting something on your Facebook wall today, just saying, this is something I think people ought to talk about. And Luther had given these 95 statements 
related to particularly the selling of indulgences was a, a key central theme. But as time went on, eventually Luther was invited to have a debate in June 1519 with a leading Catholic theologian named Johann Eck. And so they came together in a city named Leipzig, and Luther immediately wanted to start debating the Scripture to say what the Scripture taught. But Eck said, I'm not going to debate the Scripture with you with you, which was probably wise because Luther would have mopped the floor up with Eck if they debated the Word of God. Luther clearly knew the Scripture far better than Eck did. But what Eck said is, all that stuff doesn't matter. Here's what matters. You're going against the authority of the church and councils, and you are teaching the same things that Jan Hus had taught. We anglicize, we call him John Hus who's kind of the, the founder, or, or he's looked back to as the hero of the modern Czech Republic. Well, Luther, being a German, actually didn't think that he agreed with Huss, but they took a break. He went and he read the writings of Huss over lunch, and he came back, and ultimately Luther said, we're actually all Hussites. He said, I do agree with Huss, because the, the issue here is that the teaching of the church and the teaching of Scripture are in direct contradiction with one another. The things you condemned Huss for a hundred years ago, because it had been 100 years, Huss was actually correct on. And I'm going to side with Scripture against any council or creed or pope. Scripture is what matters. And this became a central doctrine of the Reformation because this same issue was done not only in this debate with Luther, the same thing happened down in Zurich when Zwingli was leading a Reformation there the Roman Catholic scholars refused to debate Scripture. And they admitted, we can't debate Scripture with you, Zwingli. You know the Scripture far better than we do. Uh, the same thing happened in Geneva. It happened over and over again because the issue was, is Scripture the final rule and authority or is, in fact, the church the final rule and authority, the church and her tradition? So what do we mean by sola scriptura? And uh, why is this important? Well, what is meant by sola scriptura is actually that the ultimate authority of God's word. The phrase is a Latin phrase, and it means scripture alone. Uh, but what it's referring to is the ultimate authority of God's word. And notice, we see this in the text in Matthew chapter 15. That's the same debate Jesus is having with the Pharisees in his day. In verses 1 and 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come and they say, Hey, Jesus, we have a problem. Your disciples are not keeping the tradition of the elders. They're eating with unwashed hands. Now, to be clear here, he's not saying, they're not saying that they didn't wash their hands with soap and water. That was not the question. It was a ritual, ceremonial, religious washing that the elders had said you were supposed to do as part of being a good Jew. The problem is there is no verse in the Old Testament anywhere that prescribes such an activity. This was just something that had been added by the religious authorities prior to the time of Christ that you were to do this, but there was no command in the Scripture anywhere regarding doing these ceremonial washings prior to eating. And so Jesus, as it were, kind of sidesteps the question and says, I'm going to go to the real heart of the issue. The issue is not whether they did a ceremonial washing or not. The issue is where authority resides. So Jesus answers them back and says, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? 
And in verse 6, he says, you actually nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And the particular tradition he brings up there is where there is something directly in Scripture. Jesus says, look, honor your father and mother. It's in the Ten Commandments. And in fact, God even strengthened that by saying, if you were to curse your father and mother, you should be put to death. So this is a very, very important command. And yet you've created a tradition, and the tradition says that if parents need care from their children, but the children decide to devote that care and say, we're going to give it to God, we're going to give it down to the, the priest at the temple, or then they don't have to honor their father and mother. And Jesus' words to them are very straightforward. There is a battle going on here between your tradition and Scripture. That's really where the problem lies here. It's not about washing hands. It's about what is the ultimate authority. And Scripture commanded you to honor your father and mother. But your tradition tells you you don't have to honor your father and mother. The two are in conflict. And so Jesus says, what you've done is you've actually nullified the word of God. You've made it of no effect. You've made the word of God empty, vain, powerless by your tradition. Because there can only be one ultimate authority. It's not possible to have two equal ultimate authorities. That does not work. That's not in the universe the way God made it. So Jesus says there's only going to be one, and it ought to be Scripture. And he goes on further in verses 7 and 9, and he says, look, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So notice, this is not just a problem in the time of the Reformation. It's not just a problem in the time of Jesus. Isaiah, more than 700 years before the time of Christ, had prophesied about the same problem. And Jesus says, Isaiah's words were true then, and they apply to you. You have the same issue the people in Isaiah's day did. You want to replace God's word with the teachings of men. You want to say that things that people have set up are equal to the word of God. And what he tells them is that, in fact, what you've done is it's made your worship empty. You think you've nullified Scripture, but actually that's just nullified your worship. To make God's Word equal to human tradition or ideas nullifies the Word of God, and it makes our worship vain. And by vain, this is not the old Carly Simon song, You're So Vain, You're So Private. What it means is it's empty. Your worship is worth nothing to God. It is an empty act that you're going through simply because you chose to elevate something else to be equal with the Scripture. It's a pretty strong warning that Jesus gives there. And so to understand sola scriptura, what, what it means is that, the, is that the Scripture alone is the ultimate source of truth, and it is the final authority for the beliefs and practice of Christians and of the church. Let me say that again. Sola Scriptura means that Scripture alone is the ultimate source of truth and the final authority for the beliefs and practice of Christians, that's individual Christians, and of the church. So 
There can't be two. The way we put this in our church's statement of faith is this. The Scripture is our final absolute authority, the only infallible rule of faith and practice for individual believers and for the church. The Scripture is not to be added to, detracted from, or changed by later tradition or extra-biblical revelation. Every doctrinal formulation or pronouncement by an individual or a council, whether of creed, confession, theology, or experience, must be put to the test of the full counsel of God as revealed in the Holy Scripture. What this means is, it doesn't matter how many people we get together and vote and say something is true. If the Bible says it's false, it's false. And it does not matter what I say. It's a common one today. You know, I'm going to keep moving into things today. Today, what we hear very often from people is, well, the Lord revealed to me. Well, if he revealed something to you that does not line up with the word of God, it was not God revealing it to you. But, but I really feel like it's true. That doesn't matter. That's called being deceived. And when we're deceived, we always feel like it's true. We have, we have an utter ability. This is why Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's beyond cure. Who can even understand it? We convince ourselves, but I really love God, and so I know this is the voice of the Lord speaking to me. If it goes against the Scripture, it is not the truth of God. You cannot add to Scripture. You cannot take away from Scripture. You cannot alter and shift Scripture without affecting the truth. There is one final infallible rule and truth, and that is the Word of God. Everything that I preach has to be tested by the Word of God. It will not do for you on Judgment Day to say, but Brett said. Brett will answer for that. Okay? It matters if it's true from the Word of God or not. God's not going to back me up and, and me say, well, I told them and I'm an elder and they should have listened. That doesn't matter. What matters is if what I'm saying is true according to the Word of God. And if it's true according to the Word of God, it's true no matter who said it. And no matter who said it, if it's not in accord with the Word of God, it's not true. I don't care how many letters they stack up after their name, how many different people get together, what kind of you know, clothing they wear, none of that alters. If it's true, it's in the Word of God. And if it's not in the Word of God, if it's not according to the Scripture, it is not true. Now let me haste to say, this does not mean that we don't value the teachings of the church down through the ages. It's not true. If you've been around me very long, you know I spend a lot of time hanging out with dead guys. I, I like reading their books, okay? I, I appreciate the truth of God that they have handed down to us. It does not mean that we don't pay attention to even creeds and councils, or that they have no authority for us. That's not what solo scriptura means. That would be solo scriptura, which would mean scripture only. We don't pay attention to anything or anyone else. That's not what the Reformation was about. But what the Reformation is saying is, we believe the creeds are true. Our, our church does agree. We believe the Nicene Creed. We believe the Athanasian Creed. We believe the Apostles' Creed. We even have some songs that are basically those creeds set to music. But we believe they're true because we believe they're an accurate summary of what the Scripture teaches. And they derive their authority from the Scripture, 
not from some other source. And so that is where it comes down. Our authority is drawn from and subservient to the ultimate authority of Scripture. So this sola saying is what's known as the formal uh, cause of the Reformation, or the formal principle of the Reformation. It means um, the other four are going to be dealing with what's the gospel? How are we saved? Which is the material stuff of the Reformation. But this at the beginning of it says, but how do we determine what the gospel is? Are we told what the gospel is just by the church or by somebody else? Or are we told what the gospel is according to the unaltering word of God? And the answer is, we get it from the scripture. This is not something that was new to the reformers, by the way, or to us. I could give many. I'll just go back. Jerome, who translated, the, the great Bible translator, Jerome around 400 AD had said, the commands of God must outweigh all authority and examples of men. Whatever authority you've got from men, whatever examples they're laying out in their life, all of that is outweighed by the word of God, the commands of God. When God has spoken, that is ultimate authority. So let's take a look at this then. If that's what Sola Scriptura is, why do we need it? Why is it so important? Is it really that big a deal? And the answer is yes. I couldn't make it any bigger a deal. Notice there was a historical need for sola scriptura, and then we'll look at our need for it today. You can see it here in biblical times, again in our very text. Notice again what Jesus says in verse uh, 3. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? You've got two choices here, and you are choosing your tradition over the word of God. In verse 6, thus you are nullifying the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You love your tradition so much, you've emptied the word of God of its authority. And then in verse 9, he says, your teachings are but rules taught by men. You have the very word of God, but that's not what you're teaching. You're not using the word of God. You've set that aside for your tradition. And so the Pharisees, like Israel before them, had abandoned the scripture for tradition. And Jesus had these conflicts over and over and over again, if you read the Gospels. Much of the time, their conflict was not even over what the Bible actually said, but all the rules that had been added on and become the tradition of the elders that were handed down. And Jesus almost went out of his way to break those traditions and to say they're wrong, and I'm not going to stand for these. They were nullifying God's word, and so the end result of doing that is your teachings are only rules of men, and that is not where freedom lies. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in the days of Isaiah. That's why Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and it's not only that that quote is coming from Isaiah chapter 6, but uh, Isaiah has the same thing in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. You can see that this was a major theme in Isaiah's day as well. He says in Isaiah 8, 19, When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. The people are saying, how do we know what God wants us to do? And somebody said, well, go to a medium or a spiritualist. They'll talk to the dead. They've already crossed through the portal and death. They'll know what we should do. 
And Isaiah says, were you dropped on your head a lot as children? What, what are you talking about? Why would you consult the dead about what should happen for the living? Why are you going to a medium or a spiritist? You have the word of God. Go to the law. Go to the testimony of scripture. And if they don't speak according to that, they don't have the light of dawn. They're in the dark. They are lost. And Isaiah had to fight this over and over again. The same thing comes down to, uh, in the New Testament, in many other places. The Apostle Paul gives one of the strongest statements of Sola Scriptura in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. The Galatians, as a little bit of background, had adopted another gospel. They had some other teachers who came in and said, well, what Paul said was okay, but we've got to add some stuff to it. His gospel's there, but it's not complete. You need some other stuff. And here's what Paul says regarding that. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul tells the Galatians this over and over. When I came, I preached to you Christ. I preached to you the gospel. The gospel that Christ lived for us, he died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. I preached this to you over and over, and then somebody came in and said they had a different gospel. And Paul says, I don't care if they tell you they're an apostle. An apostle does not have the right to alter scripture. And in fact, if an angel showed up and told you that they were here to alter scripture, let them rot in hell, because you cannot do that. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? And it gets even worse if you keep reading through Galatians. I won't even go to some of the very R-rated stuff Paul wishes for them in Galatians chapter 5. He's really not happy. Only letter where Paul is angry. I mean, the Corinthians have got all kinds of crazy stuff going on, and Paul starts with all this love and grace and mercy. The Galatians, he comes out swinging, because the gospel, the central message of Scripture was delivered to you, and you are now letting people add to it and alter it and change it. And Paul says, if you do that, you are cut off from Christ. So no one can do this, and in fact, to try and change anything brings eternal condemnation. Now, if we fast forward down to the time of the Reformation, one would think, since this was such an issue in the time of Isaiah, in the time of Jesus, in the time of Paul, one might think that after meditating for a couple thousand years on the events in the Garden of Eden, and let's remind ourselves, how did we get in the mess that we're in in the first place? You remember? God gave them a simple command. What was the command? Every tree you can eat all you want. Just don't eat from that one tree. There's only one command. It's a very short Bible at that point. Right? And the serpent comes, and what does he say? I mean, maybe, you know, but what about, and pretty soon, what does Eve say? You know, I'm looking at that fruit, and it's looking pretty good. I think maybe, I mean, surely God wouldn't want me not to have the enjoyment. I mean, it would be repressive 
if I didn't eat that fruit. Isn't that exactly what went on? So you would think that the church, having had this, would know better than to start adding to God's command. But that, in fact, is not what we did. In fact, what happened was by the time of the late Middle Ages, it had become an official church doctrine that tradition, especially with a capital T, and Scripture were equal in authority. That somehow we could do this thing of having two ultimate authorities. Which one's the ultimate, final, complete boss? And the answer was two. You can't have that. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, what really happened is tradition trumped Scripture because it always happens that way. And so the official teaching of the church, this is why they would not even debate the meaning of the biblical text because they said, we've already answered what the biblical text means. And when Luther would say, but I can show you that it goes directly against Scripture, well, we know you know Bible better than we are, but that's not the point. And again, this went over and over again throughout the time of the Reformation, and it became actually canon law at the Council of Trent after they had had 30 to 40 years to go over this and think about it and work through it. It actually was set in as canon law that everyone must agree with the following points or else you would be condemned to hell forever. Okay, that, that's not my words. That's the Council of Trent. Tradition and Scripture are equal. According to the Council of Trent, I am, I am paving my path to hell right now in this sermon. According to Jesus, I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to stick with Jesus, not the Council of Trent. Secondly, that the Apocrypha was Scripture. That's the extra books that were never considered part of Scripture in the time of Christ, even though they had all been written then. And thirdly, that the Vulgate, which was the translation Jerome had done, was the ultimate version of Scripture to be used, and it may not be disputed. Because one of the things Luther had pointed out was the Vulgate had translated, for example, Matthew 4.19, that Jesus came and preached, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven, heaven is at hand. All of you might say, I don't remember that verse. And that's because that's not what the Bible actually says. The Greek says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it has nothing to do with doing penance. And, but the point of the Council of Trent is, we can't even get into those debates. However the Vulgate translated it is the right way. There are also some people who do that in the English language today as well, but I won't go into that. Now, what this meant in reality was tradition governed the life and practice of Christians rather than Scripture. And in fact, if you had gone around in the time of Martin Luther and looked at the way Christians actually lived their life and most of the practices and what constituted most of their worship, the doing of penance, the buying of indulgences, prayers for the dead and prayers to the dead, asking them to intercede for us, the sinlessness of Mary, and that Mary was a fountain of grace to give to us. All of these have no basis in Scripture whatsoever. There's no biblical base for it. But this was what was the majority of your time as a Christian was spent practicing. And very little of what the Scripture actually called you to do was being put into practice. It's just exactly what Jesus was complaining with the Pharisees about all the time. The Pharisees had set up a system where most of the practices and rules they had had no basis in Scripture, and by the time people got done with that, they had no time to do what Scripture actually was telling them to do. And the same thing had happened in the Middle Ages. 
And in fact, this also happened when there were some radicals who came up and said that they wanted to see changes as well, but they didn't need the scripture. The Holy Spirit revealed directly to them what needed to happen. Okay? That's a very common one today. Man, you can just go home and YouTube and find all kinds of crazy stuff being said out there, and it's people doing it, and it's always some direct revelation. Words of Isaiah, to the law, the testimony. If they don't speak according to the word, they don't have the light of dawn. And so what happens is whenever we accept an authority as equal to God's word, we will ultimately subjugate scripture to that other authority. Always, you can take it to the bank. Either we have sola scriptura, or scripture is going to fall under that other authority. Now, as bad as some of that sounds, I want to tell you, it's actually worse today. We're in a worse position today, okay? The, the actual, the Roman Catholic Church doctrine has not changed, Okay, this is still the same, and it's actually the same in Eastern Orthodoxy as well, that tradition and scripture are both equal and necessary. Uh, and, it's, and, and I should point out, the debate between Protestants and Roman Catholics at the time, between Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and their, their Roman Catholic friends at that time, was not over whether you needed scripture. Everybody agreed that scripture was necessary. The question was, is scripture sufficient? Or do I need something else to add on? And that's what we're going to see every single week. There was no question grace was necessary. Is grace sufficient? No question is Christ necessary. Is Christ sufficient? Faith is necessary, but is it sufficient? All the way through and down to the glory of God. Is that what is critical and sufficient, or is that just part of it? So the same thing is here. Well, I want to show you it's actually even worse today. Because if you'd asked everybody back then a whole series of questions I'm going to show you right now, everybody would have agreed that Scripture was the Word of God. There was a, a major poll done in 2014. They actually repeated it in 2016. I'll give you the 2014 results uh, of Americans. This is the culture in which we live. The first question, is God the author of Scripture? Everybody at the time of the Reformation would have said yes. So, the debate there had everybody agreeing it was 100% yes. Today, the answer is 47% of Americans believe the Scripture is the Word of God. That is the minority opinion. Well, how about the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches? Everybody agreed with that at the time of the Reformation. They just thought that there were other things that were needed. Today, 43%. So apparently 4% of the people who believe it's God's word also think that God made mistakes, which is not entirely consistent, but we're not known for our consistency as a people. Third, the Bible alone is the written word of God. 48% actually agreed with that, which is interesting because that means 1% of them did not think it was the word of God, but they agreed it was the only word of God. That's the way we think. We are not the most rational people. Uh, I'll just leave it there, and you can, you can make your own jokes up about that. Uh, another question. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. 41% of Americans agreed with that statement. The Bible's kind of like the Iliad and the Odyssey. 
That's what it's like. It's, it's a helpful tale. It's kind of like Aesop's fables. And in the final question, and this is where the rub really comes in, the Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. 49% of Americans agree with that, which means that some people who don't even think it's the word of God and they think it's full of myths do believe that it has authority to tell them what to do, which again is kind of inconsistent. But only half the people, everybody at the time of the Reformation agreed with that statement. Eck agreed with that statement. Pope Leo agreed with that statement. Johann Tetzel, selling indulgences, agreed with the statement that the Bible had authority to tell us what to do. But less than half of the people in America today agree with that. So the situation is far worse today than it was back then. Many churches today have totally caved on the authority of Scripture, and they give authority to emotions and eternal beliefs and desires. I've been preparing for this. I'd started preparing for this uh, last year on my study week, but just a, a couple of months ago, I was riding along and listening one day, and there was a major news story that the Church of Scotland had held a, a convocation, they had a council, and they wrote out a new decree, and it was regarding human sexuality and our sexual beliefs and practices. And here's what the Church of Scotland said. Their, their theological forum report on sexuality, and I can give you the link so you can go look it up for yourself, but here's their quote. Another more inclusive argument in favor of same-sex relationships rests on a distinction between the written text of Scripture and the living Word of God the latter being associated with Jesus Christ, who speaks to us in our hearts and consciences. According to this argument, we owe our allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, rather than adherence to the literal words of Scripture. And for that reason, if people believe that Jesus is now calling the church to a new understanding of how faithfulness may be displayed in human relationships, this should be taken seriously as a contemporary form of obedience. If I could have done that in a snake's hiss voice, I would have done it. Because that was the same person as in the garden, except for he was wearing clerical robes and funny hats. This was a church pronouncement this year. And did you hear? Well, yeah, we've got the written word of Scripture, but where our ultimate obedience goes is kind of how Jesus speaks to me in my heart. Can I tell you how Jesus would speak to me in my heart? Whatever I look at and want, I hear Jesus telling me that must be what would be good for me. That, that's no authority whatsoever. That just says whatever I think is what's right. That is coming from a church, a Protestant church. So as I said, this is not about trying to bash Roman Catholicism. The question is, what do we believe is the word of God? The greatest competitor for sola scriptura today is not the tradition of the church. That was the competitor 500 years ago. The greatest competitor today is personal experience, desire, and belief. We, particularly we Americans, believe there is nothing higher than what I think and what I believe and what I want. And so that means that the truth regarding salvation, the uniqueness of Christ, the ethics of right and wrong are no longer determined by Scripture, but rather by what individuals think or feel based on their own experience. 
That's what drives for us. And so while the church at the time of the Reformation was awash in extra-biblical beliefs and practices based on traditions and often that contradicted Scripture, today the church is awash in extra-beliefs and practices that are based on personal experiences which often contradict Scripture. We, we won't go back and say it's what the church teaches because today many people don't care what the church has taught either. They, they say, boo his to both scripture and tradition. What really matters is what goes on in my heart. But friends, the heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure. The least trustworthy thing you're going to run into today is your own heart. That's some bad news for you. Except maybe my heart. <laughs> Mine might be worse than yours. That's no sure guide. It is the word of God. So how do we apply this and we'll come to the Lord's table? I'm going to, application sections will be pretty brief in this uh, teaching series. The key question is, do I believe Sola Scriptura is true? Do I believe that Scripture, the written word of God, is that Scripture is alone the word of God written? There is no other written word of God out there. Now, you can hear all kinds of people. There are all kinds of books published today that claim the authors are having these long conversations with God. I mean, Moses wished he talked to God as much as he talks to some of these people, apparently. But what they come away with is this is now God's word. Do we believe that, or do we believe Scripture alone is the word of God written? Do I believe that Scripture has final authority over me? That I have to obey the Word of God. Let me ask some questions. What other things might compete with Scripture's authorities in my life? I'm going to throw some of these up here on the screen. How about personal experience? This is what people say today. A lot of Christians want to tell people, well, when they say, how do you know Jesus is alive? How do you know he's the only way to God? Well, because I've experienced it. Can I tell you that and 225 will get you a, buck, a cup of coffee at Starbucks? Or maybe a little bit more, get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks? <laughs> Buddhists in Cambodia say they've got personal experience. Mormons have personal experience. Atheists say they have personal experience. That, that's not an arbiter of truth. Personal experience doesn't matter. Jesus either walked out of the tomb alive as a historical fact, or else we're just wasting our time. But the number one go-to for Christians today is personal experience. Doesn't matter. That's not an apologetic. How about personal beliefs, emotions, or desires? I feel this so deeply. It defines who I am. I feel that way about every sin I struggle with. That's why we do them. We don't sin holding our nose. We sin because we like it. So that, that's no basis at all. But boy, is it a rival to the authority of Scripture. Popular opinion. We live in a democratic society. If we can just get the people to vote. We were sure that... We were going to solve all the problems of Iraq if we just let people vote. Except for sometimes what you get in a democracy is just collected stupidity. Popular opinion does not determine right and wrong. 
political philosophy. This is a big one for many people who would say they subscribe to, to Sola Scriptura. But when it really comes down to it, what their political beliefs are is what really drives them even more than Scripture. What is the ultimate authority for me? Because it can't be both. One last one, cultural traditions. I know we believe Jesus looked like me and was a good American, but neither of those are true. He didn't look like me, and he wasn't an American. And so maybe, just maybe, some of our cultural traditions are not all they're cracked up to be. Maybe they have to come under the critique of the Word of God. But boy, can they hold authority in our lives. So what besides Scripture governs my thoughts and beliefs? Think about that list. I'll roll over the second question. Do I live as if sola scriptura is true? Because see, this is where, and Scott began the meeting today with, you know, in James. It's not enough to say I believe. Is it, is it actually being evidenced by fruit in my life? How do I live? Does my daily life show Scripture as the final authority or something else? And the final analysis is what governs my behaviors, my attitudes, my actions, the Word of God, or is it one of these things? I want to tell you the number of times I've seen someone tell me that it was okay for them to leave their spouse because they weren't happy. The scripture says that's not true. Yeah, but I know what God wants for me. Not if it goes against the scripture. Not if it goes against the scripture. So I can hold sola scriptura and then behave in a manner completely contradictory to that because what my personal experience, my cultural traditions, my friends are telling me suddenly makes it okay. So not only do I believe, and how are these rivals lining up, but how am I acting? Now, we're going to come to the table of the Lord because Christ has given us this table so that we could be fed and strengthened. In the Reformation, one of the key things is the ministry of the Word and the sacraments. And the table of the Lord stands at the center of that. And so here we confess our sins, and we receive fresh grace for the battle. And the primary sins today are any areas where we've been looking, and rather than following Scripture, I'm following one of those other things we were just talking about. But here's what the Scripture says to you and I. See, we, we come up with all kinds of ways. This is one of the things the church did. The church would come up and say, well, you're going to have to come in here, and I'm going to assign you to do five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers, and then if you buy this indulgence and you do this, your sins can be forgiven. No joke, and one of the first things printed on the printing press was an indulgence sale. But see, that what the Word of God says is if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, friends, as we come to the table today, we come as those who proclaim that the only thing that can cleanse me of my sin is the work of Christ.
And we have that based not on my authority, but on the authority of the Word of God. And so I want to encourage you to today confess sin. Confess whatever area something else has been governing my life rather than the Word of God. And then I want us to receive the Word of God, the, the absolution, the forgiveness, the cleansing of our sins according to the Scripture. If you are a guest here today, you do not have to be a member of our church to partake in the Lord's Supper. You do have to believe the gospel. You have to believe that your only hope on the day of judgment is the blood of Christ shed for you. That Christ lived for you, died for you, was raised for you, and that you, the only righteousness you possess is that which he has been given to you. If you believe that and that is your plea, we encourage you to participate with us. For what I received from the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, I pass on to you. That the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this covenant meal that you have given to us. And we pray, Lord, that according to your word, you would meet us as we confess our sins and that you would give us fresh assurance of our forgiveness through the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them. And again, ask the Lord to reveal any sin and confess it, and then we will partake together in just a couple moments. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread, the symbol of the flesh that you took when you came forth to work salvation for us, Lord, we are reminded that you had to take that flesh to work salvation because we had sinned. Your body was broken because we had broken covenant with you. Lord, we realize how many ways and how many times we have been like Eve in the garden. We've been like our father Adam. We had your clear word and we forsook it we cast it behind us to obey our own desires. Lord, I think of how many times I have tried to justify my own desires. I think of how often my heart is drawn to accolades of men rather than the accolade of God. When I judge myself by the ways of this world rather than by the word of God. Father, we confess our sins. Lord, our sin is not that we have disappointed others. It is not that we have not followed popular opinion. Father, our sin is that we have broken your word. And Lord, we do not hide that. We do not try to come up with some other way around it. Lord, we simply humbly confess it. 
And Father, we say we believe because Jesus was broken, we can be healed. And so we say thanks be to God for the body of Christ. Take and eat. And Father, we lift up this cup and we say thanks be to God for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we profess that his blood is powerful to cleanse us from all sin. Father, we profess that that his blood is sufficient. It needs nothing added to it. Lord, his blood is sufficient to make us children of God, to make us inheritors of all of your covenant promises, to purify us from all unrighteousness, and to even break the power of sin in our lives. Father, we are so grateful for the sacrificial blood of Christ and how all of Scripture, from the very earliest pages, pointed us to the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. Father, our only hope, the only thing to which we cling, is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we lift up this cup and we say thanks be to God for the blood of the Lamb. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would take your word that you have been speaking to us today and you would fix it to our hearts in this coming week. Lord, I pray that as each of us walk through the garden of this world, when the enemy's voice would come to speak to us, to tell us to go a certain way or to compromise or to believe the lie, Holy Spirit, I pray you would bring the word of God back to our hearts and minds. I pray that you would shape and mold us by this word. And Lord, I pray in a world that that either has no authorities that it recognizes or is running after a hundred different authorities, Father, I pray that we would be your people who would hold fast to your word. Jesus, I pray we would be like the man in the parable you told us that builds our house on the rock of your word and so that whatever storms might come, we would stand fast. Father, would you do this? Would you fasten this word to our heart In Jesus' name, for your glory, amen. Let's stand together, and we'll conclude with a word of benediction. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, go in his peace and blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.